Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. This week on EU Confidential. How do you expect the European citizens to have confidence in a system where the person regulating and making the decision about potential conflict of interest is the same person who's going on the trips? Yes, Susan, maybe to give you a bit of context on this. So I mentioned that there are two possibilities. We take you inside the big story rocking the Berlimont. That's the European Commission's headquarters in Brussels. It involves a senior EU official flying to Doha on Qatar's dime while negotiating a major aviation deal vital to that very Gulf state. Also, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is in North America this week. She paid a visit to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Canada. They say hard times reveal true friends. And this is what the European Union and Canada are. True friends. And is due to meet US President Joe Biden in the White House on Friday. We'll dig into the real purpose of her trip and what the EU is hoping to achieve. And stick around because Balázs Orbán is our special guest. He serves as political director for Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán. No relation. He speaks to Politico's Lily Beyer about international efforts Budapest is making to build relationships with conservative communities around the globe. I think Hungary in the last 12 years also became a role model for conservatives, that you can be conservative, you can be Christian, you can be responsible for your people, and you can be successful in an economic way as well. And that's the reason why Hungary is getting according to our understanding, more attention. He also addresses rule of law concerns and Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. Joining me here in the Politico studio today in Brussels is Mary Eccles, our aviation reporter. Hi there, Mary. Hello. And Carl Matheson, our senior climate correspondent. Hello. Now, our regular listeners who've been uh, listening intently will know that last week we rolled out a new feature and that was Decoding Brussels Speak. Usually we put this at the end of our podcast, but what do you know, the main story this week already has a big piece of European jargon at the centre of the story. So we're now going to front load this discussion. So Mary, the word of the week is DG. DG. Enlighten us. What is a DG. So DG stands for Directorates General, and these are basically departments responsible for a specific policy area within the Commission. So, for example, transport, competition, migration, that kind of thing. Then each Directorate General is headed by a Director General, and that's basically the top 
official in that department. So there are around 30 of these departments and they each have their own fancy acronym. So, for example, there's DG NIA, which is in charge of neighbourhood and enlargement negotiations, DG Agri, responsible for agriculture, and then I cover DG MOVE, which is responsible for mobility and transport policy. Okay, so different DGs across the European Commission. So actually, in fact, there are two meanings to the word DG. There is DG, the Directorate General, i.e. the specific department in the European Commission, and then the DG also refers to the top official in that department, the Director General. Sure, it's a bit confusing. So DG Move is at the centre of the controversy which has been dominating discussion here in Brussels this week and indeed for the last few weeks. So first, tell us a bit more about who's involved here. So the main guy in this story is called Henrik Kolleloi. He is the Director General of DG Move, the top transport official at the Commission. Um, he's an Estonian official who's been there since 2015, so quite experienced. And even though he covers all transport modes, he's known for being a bit of like an aviation geek. That's his thing. He's a regular fixture at aviation summits and panels. So he knows everyone in and around the aviation industry. Um, and I think he's seen as like quite a social popular figure. Mm. So why is he in the spotlight? Tell us about the story involving him. So last week, me and my colleague Sam Stoughton and Josh Pizzano broke this story that he'd actually received several free flights with Qatar Airways, some of which were paid for by the government of Qatar, some by organisations linked to Qatar Airways, which is owned by the state of Qatar, between 2015 and 2021. And the reason that that time frame is relevant is because within it, his team were actually negotiating quite a lucrative and controversial, frankly, agreement with Doha on air transport, which ultimately had quite a lot of benefits for Qatar Airways. Okay, so Politico broke the story a few weeks ago. So initially, the commission came out with a statement. Yeah, well, we had to kind of drag it out of them because initially we'd got this information through a freedom of information request and then we we sent them, you know, several emails and, and called several times to get responses for them to explain what had happened and why this was allowed within their rules. They told us that ordinarily the commission does pay for its officials' travel because, like in this case, it was for business reasons. But they did say that in some cases, third parties can pay for officials' travel, providing a conflict of interest assessment, if you like, has been undertaken. And they said that that had happened in this case and they said that the conflict of interest had been carefully considered and excluded. So that was that. The Commission had the statement. But then this week, there was a new development, which took a lot of us by surprise, including myself, who was at the midday briefing, which is the regular briefing given by the Commission spokesperson service on the issues of the day to journalists. Because one of the angles we were wondering here was, you know, how was this not a conflict of interest? Who signed off on this? Can you tell us what their response then to this was? Yeah, sure. So this did take everyone by surprise because I think everyone assumed there was some kind of long and drawn out process that had to take place in order for this to be signed off. What transpired was that the person who actually signed off on the conflict of interest assessment was Henrik Hollerlei himself. So essentially, he said, yeah, it's all fine for me to do this. There's no issue here. Yeah. And actually, as you heard at the top of the podcast, I was in that briefing on Monday where the European Commission spokesman addressed this issue. When it comes to the Director General, as head of department, he is in charge of assessing whether there is a potential for conflict of interest involved in the mission that we are talking about. So in other words, he himself is the authorizing officer 
who is supposed to conduct uh, this analysis. This is the procedure. This analysis was conducted in line with the applicable procedure, and at that time, in light of the elements available and in light of the information available to the Director General, he drew the conclusion that he drew. This was the procedure. This was uh, complied with. That's what we tried to explain on Friday. So sorry, I'm just a bit taken aback. You're saying the person who signed off on whether there was a conflict of interest was the person, was the DG himself? For this specific case, yes. But again, this... this So, there was a lot of response to this. And within 24 hours, we had another update from the Commission. Yeah, so basically they decided that they were going to revise their rules for staff travel. This had been something that had been in the works for a while. They were looking into it anyway, but it was something that uh, was purely looking at it from a kind of sustainability focus. As the Commission, they wanted to reduce their own carbon footprint. But this was the first time that this kind of conflict of interest idea had been introduced. And so under the new rules, director generals will have to consult the relevant commissioner to approve the expenses for their own missions. And there will also be much stronger limits on the kind of trips that can be paid for by third parties. So in future, it will only be authorities in member states or international organisations like the United Nations or G7. So under the new rules, these trips would not have been Mm. allowed Yeah, it's also important to note that on Monday, the EU Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, also opened a probe looking for information and more transparency from the Commission. She's effectively a watchdog on spending, etc. and transparency, looking for more details on these rules around travel. I mean, how big of an issue is this for the Commission? It seems extraordinary that there are rules in place that allow, you know, the most senior person in a division to just make a decision about whether to take free business class flights with Qatar. Yeah, I think also it's really interesting because it shifts the scrutiny from the parliament onto another institution around Qatargate. So I was speaking with a colleague who follows the midday briefings quite regularly. And one thing he was telling me is that any time the commission has been questioned about Qatargate, they've always kind of presented it as very much a parliament issue and suggested that it's kind of you know, they're whiter than white and that they're kind of above this kind of behaviour. So I think this is quite, yeah, a bad look for the Commission. Yes, of course, it's important to say that Mr. Hollelay has not been associated in any way with the Qatar scandal involving the European Parliament. Carl, what's your view on what's happened this week at the Commission? I think one of the things that is really under the surface or close to the surface in Brussels is the sense that how this is going to play into the 2024 European elections, you know, anything that shakes the confidence of voters, but also then or turns them off from the European project. Um, you know, the parliament always struggles to get turnout in the, in these elections anyway. So I think there's implications that are running through this. And as this story continues on and, you know, great reporting that Mari and others are doing is just uncovering more and more things that, you know, have consequences that will ripple out in terms of how people perceive the European Union and um, so that's why it's a really big deal. Mm. You know we've really noticed this is a story that's moved out beyond the bubble obviously in Estonia it's a big story but also elsewhere across Europe as you say there Carl the EU quite attuned to anything that could destabilise or could threaten confidence in the European project. So Carl another big focus this week in Brussels a bit further afield is the trip taken by the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She's on a visit to North America this week. Tell us more. 
Yeah, so the European Commission president has been on the road. She's uh, been in Canada meeting with the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the last few days, and then she's heading to Washington, D.C., where on Friday she's going to meet with uh, the president, Joe Biden. And this is quite a big moment just because it's really the first time that she's had a meeting in the White House with Joe Biden since uh, all these tensions ramped up around the U.S. Green Subsidy Program and also since the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to watch what comes out of that meeting. I mean, there are signals that there could be some kind of breakthrough of sorts in the next while on provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA plan. That's the green subsidy plan you mentioned. Obviously, we've covered this quite a bit. The EU was very annoyed that uh, the US introduced this plan, which they believe is protectionist. And they seem to be looking for some kind of treatment that they would be treated like a free trade agreement. It would be not quite a free trade agreement, but that they would have some of the benefits when it comes to electric vehicles, etc., that are currently extended under the plan to countries like Canada and Mexico. So that's one aspect of this. Um, but she's also going to be talking a lot about critical raw materials. This seems to be the new buzzword that we're going to hear a lot about in the next few weeks. Yeah, I think if we sort of go back to the last summer when the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, was put into law by the US, Europe sort of processed it for a few months and then totally freaked out. And I think then what we've seen over the last six months is a kind of process of like the the five, the five stages of grief kind of thing. And, and <laughs> arguably dropped the ball on this when this was being negotiated last year. I mean, we spoke to members of Congress who said no European officials came near them to voice their opinion. But yes, all of a sudden, you know, the penny dropped that this was actually coming and that the EU was not going to do well out of it. Yeah. And we, so we've done the rage, the despair and everything. And I think we're now coming to a, maybe a place of more acceptance. And actually... What Europe is really doing is probably wrestling with the broader picture, which is that its industries are challenged. And definitely the green subsidies that Joe Biden is putting into his industry. So European industry is worried about missing out on the huge opportunity of greening the American economy. But the other thing that um, the European Union has to face is that it's got much higher energy costs than its competitors, and that's nothing to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. True. And the other thing is that the broader picture is that China has been really on the front foot on a lot of these technologies and the supply chain of the materials that make these technologies. So all around the world, China has been buying up supply chains of what we call critical raw materials, and that's why... Ursula von der Leyen was in Canada on Wednesday with Justin Trudeau visiting a lithium-ion battery recycling plant. And what she said was essentially that Canada is one of the countries where we can look to for their resources. Canada is a huge mining country. It has all the things you need to make batteries and things like that. So what they're talking about, the language that they're using now is trusted partners. Europe doesn't want to rely on China where it gets a lot of these materials from at the moment. China produces 98% of Europe's supplies of rare earth. And Europe needs to de-risk this dependency. And this, of course, is immediately the reason why Europe seeks to work together with trusted partners. And trusted partners is first and foremost Canada. So really, China is really a big part of this in the background. Yeah. If we go to the broadest possible context, what we're really seeing is the race for clean energy is the biggest 
economic opportunity of the century, the companies and the countries that win this race will make trillions and trillions of dollars. And so what we're seeing now is China has raced ahead in certain technologies. Europe has done very well in wind technology. And so that's a big banker for them and they want to hold on to it. America is now investing hundreds of billions of dollars in trying to catch up on a lot of these. So the big superpowers, the economic superpowers of the world are in a kind of multi-decade race to dominate the industries that will create the future. And so that's with the kind of starting gun on this kind of got fired by the US last year. And now Mm. the EU is jumping on board and all of the implications for legislation are kind of unfolding. Fascinating stuff, Carl. Also, a lot of this discussion between President Biden and von der Leyen on Friday will be on Ukraine. And I think a lot of US pressure for the EU to go stronger, to go harder on China. I think there's been a long term suspicion in Washington that the EU is not as hawkish. And in fact, I think it's the case that the EU is not as hawkish on China as the US has been. For example, during the the transition between the Trump and Biden administrations, the incoming National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was he was on the record. He was not happy with the fact that the EU signed a trade pact with China at that point that was very much led by Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor at the time. I would say this point about how hawkish Mm. towards China, uh, the European Union is, is a really key part of this. As you say, the US and Joe Biden is really pushing for them to create this bubble and all the language that von der Leyen's been using this week is is around that. It's about you know cutting out authoritarian regimes. But the European Union is not resolved on this and there are many voices and in governments in across the Union that realise how dependent they are on China and don't want to cut their nose off to spite their face or just to please the Americans. Absolutely agree. I mean, the American suspicion is that, well, Europe, you build up this dependency on Russia. Let's not do the same as China. But you're absolutely right. They're nowhere near on the same page and definitely not the same page as Washington on this. Thanks so much for that update, Carl and Tamari too. Thanks for having us, Suzanne. Thank you. And a shout out to Hector, one of our listeners, who suggested DG as this week's Brussels jargon. Remember that if you've other ideas or jargon that you feel need some Politico decoding, get in touch. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. Now, stay tuned for a fascinating discussion with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's political director. He's speaking on everything from rule of law to Russia's war in Ukraine and efforts by the Hungarian government to reach international conservative communities abroad, including in the United States. We'll be right back. 
and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. We're turning our focus now to Hungary. Political's Lily Beyer recently sat down with a key figure in Prime Minister Viktor Orban's office. Hi Lily. Good to be here. Lily, tell us more. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has been in politics for his entire adult life, over three decades. But it is only over the past few years that he has made an effort to actually become a player on the international stage, building more and more links to far-right and conservative groups. He has been helped by a group of close advisors who have been traveling the globe trying to promote Hungary's vision and build friendships with like-minded figures. One of these people is Balaj Orban, who, despite sharing a last name with the prime minister, is not actually related to the Hungarian leader, but serves as a member of the Hungarian parliament. But I came from think tank for an academia and... Um, and as political director for the prime minister. Prime minister's office leader, Guyash Gergely, asked me to join his team and put together... Um, a strategic analytical team inside the prime minister's office and that's how I ended up there. The Hungarian government has been trying to build bridges to far-right and conservative forces across the globe. We have a quite a strong, stable, right-wing, conservative Christian government in Hungary for like 12 years and um, it's a unique situation in the Western world. And right now what we see is that we are surrounded by left-wing liberal, green-oriented political parties and governments. And it's, uh, you know, we are living in a polarized world. So it's, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's quite hard to cooperate on a state basis if you are not on the same basis um, from the political side. So that's why we made the decision that we want to strengthen our ties with the like-minded political forces. Hungary made a splash with this strategy. Prime Minister Orban actually traveled to Texas last year to speak at the Conservative Political Action Conference, known as CPAC, the set-piece event of the American conservative community every year. We have seen what kind of future the globalist ruling class has to offer. But we have a different future in mind. The globalists can all go to hell I have come to Texas. Uh, (laughs) We must take back the institutions in Washington and in Brussels. We must find friends and allies in one another. I asked Balaj Orban about how appearances like this help the Hungarian government with its vision. Oh, I I think it's not about us. It's about the United States. So after our friends in the Republican Party uh, lost the elections. Uh, they were also looking for uh, new models, new ideas, 
new opportunities, new friends from all over Europe. And I think that's how they found Hungary, that, look, this is a tiny little small country, but still they are stable and their policies, their clear-cut conservative policies are quite successful in, in many senses. So that's the reason why they, I think, they invited Prime Minister Orban. That's the reason that they were very happy to have the first CPAC Europe in Hungary and still, I hope we can we can learn from each other. It's still a mouse and an elephant position where we are the mouses and they are the elephants, but, but sometimes the mouse can be useful for the elephant as well. As the political director says, Hungary even hosted its own version of CPAC in Budapest last year and is scheduled to hold a similar event this year. Hello, CPAC Hungary. I'm Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to President Donald J. Trump. CPAC Hungary, uh, we are very close, as you know, all of us, to Viktor Orban. He's a great leader. I've been uh, hypnotized by the three words above the stage since I arrived here yesterday. God, homeland, and family. But despite this friendly relationship with a segment of the American right, Budapest has a very stormy relationship with the U.S. administration. I think uh, the U.S.-Hungarian position is very strong. We are a strong alliance. NATO is very important in Hungary. We are a proud and loyal member of NATO, which is a defense cooperation and plays a very important uh, role in Europe to strengthen our security. Economic cooperation is also very, very good, I would say. Um, Political relations, that might be my third part of the relationship. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's... And the reason why it is so, it's um, because if there is a democratic government, they want to have like-minded governments inside the Western Hemisphere. You're talking here about the Democratic Party in the United States. Yeah, sorry, Democratic Party. So if the Democratic Party is managing the administration, that they want to have like-minded, I would say, in a European term, liberal, progressive, democratic political forces in government. And obviously we cannot <laughs> cannot provide them, uh, the Hungarians made under decisions. There are some points like in the migration and LGBT issues and some other really highly debated issues where we are totally on the other side. Our position is very clear. We don't want to have this as a conflict point, which is undermining our cooperation. But sometimes the ambassador and the State Department thinks in a different way and they want to intervene in Hungarian domestic politics as well. Figures close to the Hungarian government are openly espousing anti-American views. Hungarian officials have repeatedly accused the U.S. ambassador in Budapest, David Pressman, of overstepping by speaking out about his concerns. Press outlets close to the government have even run a personal media campaign attacking the ambassador. I've spoken in the past with Ambassador Pressman about these tensions. The politicization and partisanization of the relationship is not sustainable. And it's important that as allies we are working together to improve this relationship and to normalize the way we speak about each other and work together. And it's, it's, taken, a, it's taken a strange turn um, that is different than our relationship with other allies around the world. And it doesn't have to be that way. 
I realize that there are different political views in this country, as in any number of countries around the world that we have strong alliances and partnerships with. And my work, our work, is not about liberal policies, it's not about conservative policies, but is fundamentally about shared core values that are premised upon small-d democracy. A huge point of contention between Budapest and its Western allies at the moment is Hungary's position on Ukraine. On the one hand, Hungary has officially condemned Russia's invasion and signed off on the EU's 10 sanctions packages. But Hungarian officials continue to visit Russia, refuse to send arms to Ukraine, and have called for an immediate ceasefire. This is at odds with the mainstream Western position, which is that Kyiv's partners should support Ukraine as long as it takes. So right now everybody is talking about that, that Russia invaded or wanted to invade Ukraine. Russia acts as an aggressor. It's against the international law. But in the last one year, this conflict became one a global conflict and uh, it became also a proxy war between the West, which is led by the United States, and Russia. And our position is very clear. We think that the European interest is different and the Hungarian interest is different. Our interest is peace. So we want to put more energy into the peacemaking process. And that's, we try to convince the United States of America and other countries in Europe to focus more on the peace building uh, process. First ceasefire, the negotiations, then peace building, then to put more oil on the fire. The U.S. has criticized Hungary for echoing Russia's talking points on the war. I also asked the political director how he responds to the American critique. If everybody who is talking about the importance of peace is a Putin puppet, then a lot of people, billions and millions of people and, and former head of states and prime ministers and American scholars and, and these kind of people are Putin's puppets. This is obviously ridiculous. So we want to have an open discussion on that issue and we don't want to be silent and if the American embassies or the state administration is accusing us of these things that it's not good. It's undermining the trust between two aligned countries and it's not good for Europe, not good for the transatlantic cooperation. There are concerns on both sides of the Atlantic about the state of Hungarian democracy. These worries include the state of press freedom, judicial independence and corruption. The EU has suspended billions in funding for Hungary over rule-of-law woes. I asked Balázs Orbán if Hungary's government could implement sufficient reforms to convince Europe to finally unlock the money. Yes, I think so, because our interest is not different. So there are some political debates which will remain. It's out of question. So in a migration issue, LGBTQ issue foreign policy issue. We will definitely never ever be on the same side with what uh, Brussels or with even with the Europe, some of the European commissioners as well. But the Europe, I'm very happy that I can say this, is not uh, a political alliance system. It's, a, it's an alliance system which is based on law and based on treaties. So, and in this regard, if we have legalized problems with each other, If somebody is saying that some 
specific Hungarian law is not in line with the European recommendation, and they can tell exactly what the problem is and then just general talking about political issues, then the Hungarian government is on the same side and uh, the willingness is there to modify our laws. But despite all of these tensions, the political director doesn't see any reason why Hungary wouldn't remain an integral part of the European Union. I have a very bad news for our political opponents. We will remain here and try to turn um, Europe into a different direction, back to the original idea, the cooperation of frequent nation states. Thanks to Lily for bringing us that interview. And that's all the time we have today. Be sure to follow us or subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening. And do keep your ideas and feedback coming. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, with editing assistance from Corey Bennett and production assistance from Julia Poloni and Zoe Bass. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.